Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you today here in Calamesa. I've known about this church for a long time. I've been here a few times. Uh, those of you who've been here quite some time may remember a custodian by the name of Peter Temchek, who was here a number of years ago. That's my wife's grandfather. And so we feel a special connection with the Calamesa Church. I'm happy to be part of a series that some of my colleagues from the Faculty of Religion are uh, involved with here in August. It's uh, a great privilege for us to engage the minds of young people at a very formative time of their lives uh, and try to encourage them to think about life's great issues and to think about the spiritual dimensions of some of the topics that they're studying in, as they pursue their professional and graduate degrees. Now, those of us on the faculty of religion represent a variety of disciplines. Um, we have biblical scholars, church historians, and what they deal with is what the faith represented in the past, how it was understood, how it came to be. Uh, then we have ethicists, psychologists of religion, specialists in pastoral care, and their challenge is to try to apply the message of the gospel to some of life's central challenges today. My discipline is often described as systematic theology. And what systematic theologians uh, seek to do is to look at the gospel, identify its central themes, and then uh, organize them in a logically attractive way and show how they engage the world with which we live, to relate what we believe as Christians with the rest of what we know. It's a, a challenging task. We need all the help we can get. That's why it's nice to be working with other people, and it's good to be uh, here with you today. A um, number of students of mine are in the congregation, Mark and John and Ken. Thank you for those kind words of introduction. Thank you, Chris, for sharing your pulpit with us. Uh, it's a real privilege to be here. I'm especially happy that my wife can be here. Uh, like the Parkers, we will celebrate our 40th anniversary this month. In fact, Monday is our 40th anniversary. Thank you. I don't know how Dick and Bonnie uh, keep track of which anniversary it is, but uh, I can tell you how I keep track. The first year we were married, they played the first Super Bowl. And so every year, Every year when those Roman numerals go across the screen in February, okay, 39, it's 40. Uh, you, you can tell I'm a very sentimental person. I never forget an anniversary. So we're, we're glad to be here for that. Now, Gail's specialty is uh, pedagogy, I guess we'd say. She's director of faculty development at Loma Linda University, as well as holding positions in several different schools, like the School of Allied Health Professions, School of Public Health, and so on. And she regularly conducts classes on how to teach. In other words, her job is to help teachers become better teachers. Uh, this fall, I'll start my 33rd year as a teacher of college and university classes. And having a wife whose specialty is teaching has over the years been for me a great source of irritation, actually, <laughs> because uh, whenever I make a presentation afterwards, she'll say, Rick, it was good, but see, it could have been better. Let me tell you how. So anyway, um, I digress at any rate. 
one of the techniques that she uh, uses to help people realize uh, some important things as they teach is to give people a series of numbers and then ask how many of them they can remember. Now, don't write these down. This is a, a mental test only. Uh, let's try it now. Let me give you a list, okay? 25, 42, 6, 98, 73, 67, 30, 86, 4, 16. Anybody remember them all? Okay. Anybody remember the first two? Okay, 25, 42. Anybody remember the last one? 16. <laughs> My wife does. Thank you very much, Cam. Uh, now, the point of the exercise is not to try to tell us how weak our memories are. Uh, the point of the exercise is to illustrate that when we're given a sequence, we tend to remember the first and the last most readily. Those are the things that we uh, uh, remember most easily. This is why writers pay a lot of attention to the way they begin and end stories. I went to a, a workshop for would-be writers, graduate students in English at La Sierra many years ago, and the writer, a well-known American novelist, John Gardner, was talking about things that writers could do to improve their skills and hone their craft. And he said a good exercise is just to write opening sentences for short stories. Just see how many good opening sentences you could write. Because if you can get the reader's attention right off the bat, you can uh, often tell a story that they'll stay with. Um, several months ago, I was paging through the Gospel of John in one of these versions of the Bible that outlines the materials so you can see where the major sections come. And I noticed at the beginning of the last major section, the hour had come, the verse that captured my attention, it was John 13, verse 1, and I was looking at the New Jerusalem Bible, and this is how it reads. We've got it. Okay. Before the festival of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come to pass from this world to the Father, having loved those who were his in the world, loved them to the end. The closing words of that sentence have stayed with me for a long time. What does it mean to love to the end? Because that's what Jesus did. And if you take that as sort of the, the topic sentence, the theme for everything that follows, the passion of our Lord, we see there a vivid demonstration of what it means to love to the end. What does it mean? As a theologian, I can't think of any greater theme than the love of God. It's the greatest possible object of contemplation. Ellen White says that eternity will not be enough time for us to explore the significance of God's love. A philosopher I studied a number of years ago, Charles Hartshorn, was also fascinated with the love of God. Not a religious person in a conventional sense, certainly not an Orthodox Christian, but he said this. He said, in its early stages, religion means certainty about many things. But now we see that he is most religious who is certain of but one thing, the world-embracing love of God. So to come back to the love of God, the world-embracing love of God, is to take us to what is absolutely basic 
to Christian faith and experience. And there's no portrayal of God's love more powerful than what we find here in the gospel. And if beginnings and endings are so important, we can see that John, in a sense, is moving us to this final outstanding demonstration of God's great love for us. This is what we see in the closing chapters of Jesus' life. So what do we see here that tells us about what it means to love to the end? What does love to the end involve? Well, the first answer comes right after this verse because we see here the picture of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Love to the end is a love that stoops to serve. It's a love that will go to any length, plunge to any depth, to express itself. There's no burden too heavy for it to bear. There's no sacrifice too great for it to make. Love to the end can face anything. This movement from height to depth, spanning the farthest reach of our imagination, appears in one of the earliest hymns that Christians sang. At least that's what scholars tell us. Uh, Paul's description of Christ's great condescension in Philippians 2 is is widely regarded as a, as a, as a hymn. Uh, Paul says, make, this, make your own mind the mind of Christ Jesus. I don't know if we have it up there or not. Okay, well, I'll read it to you, all right? Make your, own mind the mind of, make your own the mind of Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, Becoming as human beings are, and being in every way like a human being, he was humbler yet, even to accepting death, death on a cross. Love to the end is a spirit of sacrifice that reached its fulfillment in the crucifixion. My friend John Dibdahl was a missionary to Thailand a number of years ago, and I heard him tell uh, once about a conversation he had with a monk in a Buddhist monastery. Uh, evidently, he got word that this monk was planning in uh, one of the buildings there on the campus of the monastery to commemorate each of the world's great religions. And so he was planning to do something for Christianity and wondered what it should be, and so invited John Dibdahl up for a conversation. Uh, John said the man had a copy of the Bible, which he uh, had read parts of, and he gave certain passages a very interesting Buddhist interpretation. And uh, then he turned to John and he said, John, what do you think that uh, we should do here to commemorate Jesus, the founder of Christianity? Well, John said he drew from his knowledge of Thai culture to answer that question. Evidently, in, uh, in that part of the world, the um, parts of the human body become less mentionable the farther you get to the earth. Okay. So the least mentionable part of the body would be the foot. In fact, John said you can't use the word foot in polite society without apologizing for it ahead of time. Um, so what he did was take the Bible, open it to John 13, and read the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Now, John said when he was done, he looked up from the Bible, and there stood this man, thunderstruck. His mouth was open. When he finally found his voice, he said, do you mean to tell me that Jesus, 
that great man, the founder of your religion, the largest religion in the world, actually got down on the ground and washed his disciples' feet. John said, yes, that's what he did. Well, after another moment, the monk said, well, that's it. Okay. Here's what we'll do. To commemorate Christianity, we'll put here on the wall a picture of Jesus, and underneath these words, he washed his disciples' feet. John said that was a wonderful way to communicate the significance of love to the end in that culture. The cross was not a symbol that resonated with them. Uh, it was quite foreign to their thinking, or it represented something quite different. But for Jesus to wash his disciples' feet gave them the essence of the gospel. And what's wonderful about this story is the natural, spontaneous way in which Jesus engaged in this activity. He washed the feet of his followers so willingly, so unaffectedly. It wasn't as if he had to drum up the courage or the determination to do that. His love for his disciples was completely spontaneous. He served them without the slightest hesitation. And so what we see in this great hymn that Paul records is that Jesus' condescension was more than a human sacrifice. What Jesus was showing us was the way God really is. So his divinity was not something he left behind to come to this world. It was something that he came to express. And so what we see in Jesus' acts of loving service is nothing less than God's own character put on vivid display. So Jesus was not putting on an act or playing a game or stepping out of character when he served others. He was, in fact, showing us what God is all about, what it really means to be God. The great theologian Karl Barth puts it this way, for God, it is just as natural to be lowly as it is to be high, to be near as it is to be far, to be little as it is to be great, to be abroad as it is to be at home. When we think about the nature of God, at least theologically, the idea of the Trinity is one of those big concepts that seems to represent an enormous challenge to many people. And it can get quite complicated if we're trying to think of how three can be one and one can be three. And some people go off into uh, the realm of mathematics to try to come up with models or geometry or human psychology or things like that. But the simplest way of thinking about God as three in one is to reflect on the fact that what we see of God in Jesus is the way God really is. Jesus is not putting on a show. Jesus was not someone other than God that he sent to come here. What we see of God in Jesus is the fullest, clearest revelation of what God is. He's telling us what he's really like. And so if we sort of expand on that, think about what that means in relation to lots of other issues, uh, we go in a different direction. But it's natural, spontaneous for God to be with us. I saw a film about Queen Victoria a number of years ago. It was called Mrs. Brown. And uh, in one of the scenes in this film, she uh, rides into the country on horseback accompanied by just one other servant, Mr. Brown, 
backstory is there may have been some sort of romantic attachment there. But anyway, she wants to go out into the country, have dinner in a country cottage with just plain folks, and, uh, you know, behave like an ordinary person. Well, when she gets there and they're getting the meal ready, she wants to be useful like ordinary persons would want to be, and so she decides to set the table. So she gets the silverware, or I guess they'd probably call it flatware, and she approaches the table to set it, and she suddenly stops because she has no idea where the pieces go. She's never set a table in her life. Somebody has always been there to serve her. She's never served anyone else. Well, this passage shows us that King Jesus is totally unlike Queen Victoria. He's not out of character when he serves. He's perfectly in character. In fact, acts like this demonstrate his kingship, his royalty to the fullest. What else does love to the end do? Well, it shares its greatest treasures with others. Now, when we read through the Farewell discourses of Jesus, as they're often called, these great chapters that bring the Gospel of John to a climax just before uh, Jesus' death. We find that there is one predominant concern in Jesus' life. It seems even to override his own concern about the struggle he's facing internally. He wants to bring his disciples into the circle of fellowship that characterized his own relation with the Father. The love that radiates between the Father and the Son. This endless circle of affection and affirmation that is central to God's life, that many theologians believe defines God's life. That love is something that Jesus wants to share with his disciples. He wants to bring them into the innermost circle of God's own life and love. In other words, Jesus offers his disciples his dearest possession. He doesn't keep it for himself. He doesn't say, now, this is my prerogative. This belongs exclusively to me. This is something you'll never have. You'll never understand it. I'll be on this level. You'll always be on that level. No, he says, in prayer, may they all be one, just as, Father, you are in me and I am in you. With me in them and you in me, may they be so perfected in unity that the world will recognize that it was you who sent me and that you have loved them as you have loved me. Nothing was more precious to Jesus than his relation to the Father, and that is the gift that he offers to them. It's a wonderful thing to receive a gift, especially when it's offered to you so spontaneously, so surprisingly. Uh, when our kids were little, I uh, took them swimming one Sunday morning in the pool of a neighbor's backyard. It was a good friend of mine. Uh, he came bursting out the door and said, Rick, how would you like to go to England? I said, I'd love to go to England. I've never been. When? He said, this afternoon. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yeah. He says, I've got a ticket I can't use, and if you can, uh, if you, if you can manage it, uh, it's yours. In fact, he said, I'll even drive you to the airport. Well, this was before all the security checks and everything. It would never work today, but I used his boarding pass and got on the plane. And to my great surprise, the next morning I was walking around London. It was also a great surprise to my department chair, who was flying on the same plane, and 
who had scheduled me to start teaching a summer school class the next morning. I <laughs> forgot all about talking to him about this. <laughs> and, uh, but he was a gracious person, too. I got one of my colleagues to stand in for me and tell my students I'd been unexpectedly called out of the country and I'd meet with them a week later, which I did. So anyway. But uh, love gives spontaneously. And when you receive a gift like that, it, it just, it's, it's, it's amazing what it does to have someone with such generosity give it to you like that. Love to the end puts others first. It's interesting to look at the division of material that we find here at the conclusion of the gospel according to John. Uh, from John 13 to John 20, those chapters that record the passion of our Lord, five of those chapters, more than half, deal with Jesus' time with his disciples. And then, of course, there's the, the crucifixion and, and so forth, the trial, the crucifixion. Half of it, more than half, describes Jesus' great devotion to his disciples. We see these touching descriptions of Jesus with his disciples, giving them everything he possibly can, finding all the words he possibly can to communicate his love for them so that they will remember him and uh, cling to his words in the future. Love to the end puts others first. Just two weeks ago, uh, a cousin of mine died after uh, many years of struggling with multiple sclerosis. In 1999, he had to leave his job and he moved in with his parents, my aunt and uncle, in, who live in Loma Linda. Uh, they had just retired themselves and they had made plans to travel and pursue their various hobbies and interests as anyone would in retirement. But when they saw their son's situation and his need, they devoted themselves to caring for him. And that's what they did in their home for 17 years. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. I think in that time, according to what my uncle told me on one occasion, they had only one weekend away from their son. Now, what was remarkable to me, really amazing to me about this, is that there was never a trace of bitterness or self-pity in any of that time. They were happy to have the privilege of caring for their son. And when he passed, they expressed the fact that they would miss him dearly. Well, that is amazing to see that love to the end can put others first, no matter what the challenges or the requests are. Love to the end never gives up. I like the way that uh, J.B. Phillips translates one of the central verses in 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter that we've all probably memorized in one version or another. But Phillips puts a central description of love. Here we have it. Love knows no limit to its endurance no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. It is, in fact, the one thing that still stands when all else has fallen. In many ways, this was the issue of Jesus' last great struggle. How long can love last? 
Is it strong enough to outlast everything else? Well, there are a lot of strong things in this world. There are a lot of strong things in human experience. In various parts of the world, we see the consequences of enduring hatred and animosity and misunderstanding. Suspicion, fear, envy, desire for revenge. These are powerful forces in human experience. In one hot spot in the world after another, you can find people who carry resentment toward others for years, decades, even centuries. Human beings have an immense capacity to harbor grudges and nurse their grievances. People can cling to a hope for revenge forever, it seems. Is there anything stronger than that? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. Yes, there is. His love. His love outlasted the faithlessness of his friends and the animosity, the hatred of his enemies. Jesus did not forsake those who forsook him. He did not return the torment of his executioners with threats of what would eventually come to them. To the contrary, as we read in the first letter that bears Peter's name, he was insulted and did not retaliate with insults. When he was suffering, he made no threats. Love has this capacity to outlast everything else. Love is a, a mysterious and wonderful quality in human experience. And one of its amazing abilities is the ability to awaken love in return. The most important commandment that Jesus gave his disciples appears in these farewell discourses. He said, love one another as I have loved you. Now, people have reflected on commands like this for a long time. My ethicist friends can talk about these. You can command an action, but how do you command an attitude? It's very difficult. We can do things, but how do we feel things? Well, you may say love is an action, not a feeling. Um, but something else that seems to emerge from here is the fact that it is Jesus' love that enables us to love. I don't think Jesus is so much saying, okay, here's the command love one another. Now let me tell you how hard that command is going to be. You have to love each other as much as I have loved you. So here's the command and here's the standard that you have to meet in order to fulfill that command. Suppose we look at it another way and say what Jesus was doing is telling his disciples to love one another and then telling them how they can do that by letting his love for them flow to those around them. So Jesus was not so much telling them what they had to do as telling them how they could do it. Love can't be commanded. It can only be inspired. It can only be awakened by others. So the love that Christians show to each other is not something that we can somehow discipline ourselves to manifest. It's not a habit that we can deliberately acquire. It's something that will flow through us to others if we open our lives to him. To love one another, we don't have to worry about developing the immense inner resources to embrace them. All we have to do is open our lives 
to let God's love come in and flow through us to others. Jesus' love to the end makes it possible for us to love to the end. At the entrance to La Sierra University, for the past few years at any rate, there is a monumental bronze installation depicting the story of the prodigal son. A number of you have probably seen it. So we have the story of the Good Samaritan on the Loma Linda campus. We have the story of the prodigal son on the La Sierra campus. It has three monumental bronze figures. At one end is a kneeling portrayal of the, the prodigal son, the one who left home, wasted his share of the family fortune, came to himself, realized he had nowhere else to go, went trudging back, and uh, was ready to beg to be taken back into the father's household as a servant. So he's kneeling there, um, barefoot, shirtless, hands outstretched, looking down, dejected, discouraged, marginally hopeful. At the other end stands the older brother, upright, proud, wrapping his fine clothes around him, looking uh, with a scowl on his face over his shoulder at the scene that's transpiring behind him. And in the center is the father, the central figure in the story. The parable's misnamed. It's really not the story about the prodigal son so much as it is the story about the waiting father, who not only stands there waiting for his son to come, but rushes to embrace him. A scholar friend of mine pointed out that in that culture, for the superior to approach the inferior would have been a great violation of protocol. Okay. If I hear that I'm supposed to have a meeting with the chancellor, I go to his office. He doesn't come to mine. It's, it's that sort of thing. Uh, so, uh, but here the father runs, and he's not out in the country somewhere on a country road. Uh, he's right in the middle of a village where everybody could watch, and you can imagine gossip in little villages. The problems of that family had probably been entertainment for the community for quite some time. And the father is sacrificing his dignity, running through a doorway to embrace this wayward son. And Jesus is saying, that's what God is like. Well, a generous donor made that wonderful installation available, and it had been dedicated. There was one problem, though. There was some tile work on the base around it that had never been completed. And the president of the university, Larry Garrity, told me a, a story about that. He said, uh, I really got kind of upset. It was a little embarrassing not to have our part done when the donor had done his part. And so I asked our vice president for finance, David Garagis. I said, David, you've got to get that contractor out here and finish that, that project off. And so the vice president called the contractor, who probably called the subcontractor. And eventually, as uh, soon as possible, Man showed up in the morning, apologized for being so late, was getting his tools and equipment and supplies out of his truck, and uh, David Garagis was standing there to be sure he did it the right way. And the man looked up and saw those statues there, and he said, well, what is this? And uh, David said, well, that's the story of the prodigal son. And the man said, never heard of it. What's it about? Well, David was a little surprised, but he told him the story that we're all so familiar with. 
Son asked for his share of the money, blew it on wild living, came back, asked to be taken in the home. The father welcomed him. When he was through telling the story, he said this contractor was weeping copiously, tears streaming down his face. He said, I can't believe it. Just this very morning, before I came here to do this work, I kicked our youngest son out of the house. He said, my wife and I have three boys. They're grown. The two oldest boys finished their education. They've gotten good jobs. They're getting on with their lives. They've made us nothing but proud. And this younger one has been one problem after another. And finally, I just had it. And so this morning I said, leave home today and never come back. And I told my wife, take his things out of his room and throw them in the front yard so he won't even have to ring the doorbell. But after hearing this story, I'm going to call my son and apologize and ask him to come back. Love to the end. Love to the end awakens love in return. Love to the end confers immense value on us. Sometimes we think that what makes us worth something as human beings is how much we have or special abilities that we've either been gifted with or acquired or a long list of accomplishments that we've worked hard to accumulate or any number of things. But I think what Jesus final words assure us is the fact that it is his love for us and nothing else that makes us valuable. Love to the end treasures its object. For a number of years, I've helped to lead us study tours to the Middle East and Southern Europe. And a woman who served as our guide in Greece for several years once described what would happen if she visited the little village where she grew up. Now, by this time, she had lived in Athens uh, most of her adult life. She was thoroughly urbanized, sophisticated, modernized in every way, a woman of the world. But she said, if I went back to the little village where I grew up, they would recognize me as someone that they knew. But to be sure, they would ask me this question, whose are you? Not who are you, but whose are you? In traditional Greek culture to this day, a woman's identity is established not on her own terms, but in terms of the most important man in her life. <laughs> so she belongs either to her father or, after she's married, to her husband. Now, we may not uh, agree with the politics of that. I rather imagine we wouldn't. But there's a wonderful spiritual lesson there. The most important thing about us is not who we are, it's whose we are. By ourselves, on our own, we may not be worth very much. But if someone of great importance loves us, that makes all the difference in the world. That confers enormous value. Robert Dykstra, a chaplain at Princeton University, makes this point with a story from his student days. As a young man, Dykstra rented a room from a lovely older woman of considerable wealth. 
who shared her spacious home with poor graduate students like him. In her dining room, alone in a reserved space on a buffet, stood her most precious possession, a piece of Steuben glass, a crystal vase. The vase had a deep center and then flared out dramatically to the rim. She filled it with fresh tulips and other flowers and uh, showed it off to everyone who came. She loved that vase. Um, those of you who are into collectibles may know what Steuben glass is worth. Somebody gave me a catalog once. That's as close as I'll ever get to a Steuben, I think. And uh, the prices ranged from a few hundred to many thousand dollars. So I can imagine the impression that this vase made on Dykstra and his fellow boarders. Well, one day, while the lady was away visiting some friends, uh, another boarder in the home, another student, took the vase from its place in the living room out to the kitchen to wash it out and accidentally dinged the rim on the tile counter in the kitchen. A little corner triangle of glass fell out. Oh, she was sick. So was Dykstra, who happened to be there at the time. They didn't know what to do. So they just took the vase and set it on the counter and left it there. Well, as time went by, that little triangle in the rim developed into a crack that began working its way down the crystal vase. And it was clear to them that this vase was ruined. The woman came home and instinctively looked over to the place where it ordinarily stood there in the living room and uh, didn't see it. And then when she got to the kitchen and saw what had happened, Dykstra said she wasn't so much angry as just kind of uh, bereaved, sick at what happened. For weeks, she just let it sit there, unable to face the inevitable. Maybe they can fix it somehow, she said, wringing her hands. Maybe there's something they can do to, to glue it together um, or something like that. Well, he wanted to be realistic, so he said to her, you can't repair broken crystal. It's impossible. She knew it. It was her inability to be realistic that bothered him. She just couldn't face the cold fact that her beloved crystal was now a piece of junk. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Sand to Steuben to sand. I think I'm going to call up Steuben to see if they might not be able to fix it, she said one more time. And Dykstra tried to keep from rolling his eyes. Why couldn't she just give it up, accept the obvious, and move on? Well, undeterred by his lack of enthusiasm, she finally did exactly that. She called up the Steuben people in New York City. She told them what had happened. She said, I know it's crazy and all, but I wonder if there's something you might do with this vase. Well, they said, we're sorry for your loss. There's no way to repair the vase. There's no way to fix broken crystal. Once it's cracked, it's gone. Furthermore, the design that you've described is out of production, so we don't have any to sell you. Well, Dykstra's nodding his head. Finally, they're getting somewhere. They can move on, reach closure. You know all of those words. Get over it. Uh, but then the Steuben people said something that took their breath away. What they said was this. If you take 
that piece of crystal and bring it down to our main showroom in Manhattan, in New York City. We will take your broken vase and we will give it to our craftsmen and they will fashion an exact replica and we'll give it to you at no charge, entirely free. At that point, Dijkstra said, I realized I had been looking at the wrong thing. I'd been looking at this broken vase. All I saw was a piece of junk. But this was not just any vase. This was a Steuben. It wasn't what it was that should have occupied me, but whose it was. Okay. The Steuben people cared about what they had made. They cared about the people who cared about what they had made, and they stood behind it. It was their care that gave that vase such great value. And the same is true of us. We have great value because of God's great love for us. So no matter what our level of success or failure, no matter what a mess we may have made of our lives, we are precious to the one who made us, to the one who loves us with an everlasting love. It's not who you are, it's whose you are that counts. The one who loves to the end loves you to the end. When he looks at your life, he sees something of infinite value. He craves your companionship, he longs for your love. Thank God for the creative, unfailing fountain of his love and respond by giving him your heart. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs>